started Missio Day Church in Falcon in 2013, along with his wife and his average children. So he said, you know, whenever you go someplace, people want to hear like a, like a bio on you. So you got to say something about your amazing children, which I'm sure his children are amazing as well. Yeah, it's amazing kids. So back in 2013. And so I had an opportunity to go down there a few weeks ago and be with them. And so he was willing to come up here and share a little bit. So just so you know, Missio Day is part of the same network that the town church is a part of. And they have been helping out by praying and financially supporting us since the very beginning. So uh, super grateful to you guys for all that you've done and just for your support, especially over the last last couple of years towards me. Thank you very much. So I'm going to invite you to come on up. You may want to say some more about your life too. I'm sure there's more to this. A little bit, yeah. The first thing is I will fight you. Our kids are amazing, and I will, I will go to bat for them with that. Yeah. No, it is such a privilege to be here worshiping with you guys. I had the uh, awesome opportunity to um, preach a sermon here probably four or five years ago or something like that, so it feels like I'm coming back here to Greeley in order to worship with you guys, but it, it is uh, such a special thing to be here. And like Joey mentioned, we have uh, been praying for you guys uh, ever since before you even existed as a church plant. And so uh, the, uh, the heart of our church is very much knit to the heart of your church. And so we are uh, really for you guys. We're grateful for all the work that you have done in this uh, city and in the college campus and just the hearts that have been touched by the gospel through the work of the town Greeley. And we're grateful for Joey. He, he preached a amazingly encouraging sermon for us a few weeks ago. And so um, he just he cared for me really well while he was preaching the sermon. And then we meet in an elementary school. It's actually the elementary school that Benjamin went to elementary school in, which is a neat little connection as well. And so we, over the last nine years, we've had a number of guest preachers come in. Uh, and Joey's the first person who ever stayed to help with teardown, which is such an amazing example of a servant heart and willingness to serve. And so you guys are just super blessed to have Joey here leading you guys and caring for you. Um, I, I have no no doubt that uh, God is continuing to work here. Um, these last few years have been hard for everybody, and there's no church in America that's like, boy, we really came through that pandemic strong. We're doing great. Can't wait for the next one. Let's see what happens. Um, but like every church has struggled in many ways over the last few years, and just having Joey to graciously lead you guys, I, I'm super um, grateful that God has placed him here, and that uh, and grateful to be here worshiping with you this morning. So um, I'm going to be preaching a sermon out of the book of Acts. That's where we're at as a church. Um, but before we get to Acts, I want to read a different story, an Old Testament one. This is only four verses long, uh, and so this comes from 1 Samuel chapter 5, and it's, I think it's one of the funniest stories in the whole Bible. So what's happened here is um, the, the Ark of the Covenant, we've all seen Indiana Jones, right? We know what the Ark of the Covenant is because Harrison Ford is able to find it. Um, if you don't like late 80s movies, you don't know what I'm talking about, but the Ark of the Covenant is the symbolic presence of the special power of God and his blessing for the nation Israel. And the way that they would work in the, old, in the ancient world is when you went to war with another country, you were, your deity was battling their deity. And so what happens is God is disciplining Israel, so he allows the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the Philistines. And so the Philistines capture the Ark, and listen to what happens. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon, 
And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back up in his place. And when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And so like I said, these, these, they, and they viewed it as they were deity. Dagon was battling Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And since they beat the Israelites, that must mean that Dagon is more powerful than Yahweh. And so they took the ark of the covenant, set it up in their temple to be like a sub-deity for the nation of the Philistines. Only they woke up the next morning and found that their god, Dagon, had fallen face down, bowing in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so can you imagine that awkward phone call they had to make that afternoon? They're like, hey, I'm gonna need you to send some guys and some rope. Our god has fallen and he can't get up. We need to put him back in his place. And then the next day, the same thing happens again, bowing before the power of the God of the Old Testament. So they make that same phone call. They're like, this time bring some glue. We're gonna have some repairs to do on our God. He's really struggling right now. So what's happening in the Old Testament there is that's a picture of the power of God. Okay, like God does not bow before anyone else. All other deities or so-called deities, all other false gods and idols bow before God because he is the only one who's worthy to be worshiped. But I think the thing that I wanna take out from that story for us this morning as we get ready to go into the book of Acts is how similar we are to the foolish Philistines who prop their God up. Okay, we all have things in our lives that we look to and we say, the reason I'm okay is because I have this on my side. And what ends up happening inevitably is that false sense of security is, will come crumbling down around us. And at different points in our lives, we feel like we have to stand our God back up and try to make sure that our life is going to be okay because it's falling all around us. And so, so what we're seeing here is that the foolishness of the Philistines is actually something that each of us wrestles with. We, we are all that foolish. We are tempted to build our lives around something other than Jesus. And inevitably, when that something that we're building our life around crumbles, we feel this need to come to its rescue. Okay, we, we want to save our false God. We want to save our sense of identity ourselves. And what the question we want to ask this morning as we study the book of Acts is if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? Okay, if I have to save my identity, what makes me think that that sense of identity would ever be strong enough to save me? So we're going to pray and jump into God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence here with us. I thank you for this amazing church that has been such a blessing to this community for these last few years. And I pray that as we study your word, that you would strengthen all of us, that we would see a reflection of our own foolishness in these pages, but we would also see an even clearer picture of your grace and your love for us. May, may God, we see such a wonderful picture of your grace that we leave here more in love with you than when we came. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you're uh, not familiar with the book of Acts, the book of Acts tells the story of the beginning of the, the newborn church. After Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit to empower the 12 disciples, the apostles, to, to start churches all over the Mediterranean world. The apostle Paul comes on the scene. We're, we're all familiar with him. He's the most influential Christian that has ever lived. And he plants churches all over the Mediterranean world in the Roman Empire. And so we're going to pick up just kind of in the middle of a story uh, here in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, and I think the Pew Bibles I checked is page 928. It'd be good to have that scripture out in front of you this morning. So, so here, here's uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. 
And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So, so what we're seeing here is this is just an, a day in the life of the Apostle Paul. So Apostle, the Apostle Paul's calling was to travel the Mediterranean world and to start churches inside significant cities in the, the Roman Empire. And so he has been in the city of Ephesus for a couple of years. He's come from Athens. He's come from Corinth, all these other influential places. And he feels the calling from God to go plant churches in Rome, to go strengthen the church in Rome. And so what we're seeing here is that Paul says he's resolved in the spirit. So Paul is confident of his calling. He knows what his vocation is, and, but he also knows that it's the Holy Spirit that is empowering him to go do these things. And so the, the question that comes up is, is Paul making up his mind to go to Rome or is the Holy Spirit leading him to go to Rome? And, and the, the beautiful answer here is, is yes to both of those. Paul, Paul is being led by the Spirit into this sense of calling that he has. And that's why it's so beautiful when you read through the book of Acts. There's so many different places that point out that if you are a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Okay, the omnipotent God has taken up residence in your soul. And because of that, you don't need to become like a super Christian or an A-team Christian in order to be led by the Spirit. If you are a follower of Christ, the Spirit leads you into what your calling is. And the other thing we see from the book of Acts is that each individual Christian has this sense of calling. Okay, it doesn't matter what you do vocationally or your nine to five, but if you are a follower of Christ, you have a calling from the Holy Spirit. He has placed you where you find yourself so that you can be a missionary for the kingdom of Jesus. You're, you're called to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light is how First Peter describes that. And so this idea of calling is saying, uh, you, the word vocation means calling. And so each of us, like the Apostle Paul, has a calling. I love this quote from Frederick Buechner. He says, The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Okay, God's calling on your life, is, your vocation is where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. And so for some of us, that works out well, and it's what we do vocationally. It's what we do for a living. God has placed us in the place where our gladness is met. If, if you are a student and you're here studying, you probably have this sense of calling of, I want to go into this vocational field so that I can make a difference in people's lives. But the point is, the Spirit has empowered you to do those things. And so when you live out your calling, like the Apostle Paul, you're being faithful to the vocation that he has put in front of you. But here's the thing. Uh, being faithful to the calling God has on your life does not mean that it will be easy. Okay, every vocation, every calling will have difficulties in it that make you think, I think I screwed up this calling thing. I think I'm hearing a calling over there, Lord. I'm going to go try that place because the grass is always greener on the other side of the pasture. But, but what, just because God has placed you somewhere does not mean it'll be easy. And, and here's the thing I love about this section. Uh, Paul wrote, or Luke wrote the book of Acts describing Paul's ministry here, these two verses. But while this is happening historically, the Apostle Paul is writing his letter to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, that we know as 1 Corinthians. And look how Paul describes this exact season that we're reading about in the book of Acts. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And I love that just juxtaposition. As, as Paul is saying, I know God has called me here because there's the chance for ministry, and there's many adversaries. Okay, difficulty and God's calling on us often go hands in hand. So, so if you enter a hard season with your vocation, don't assume that that hard season means that it's time to bail. 
Okay, there will always be gospel opportunity while there is gospel challenge meeting that. Where God calls you, there will be open doors for ministry and adversaries that are present. Okay, so, so that the reason this, these two verses are important is because now for the rest of this story, we're going to see a picture of what those adversaries meant for Paul. Okay, what the challenge is that they brought him in this situation. This story is a lot of fun to read. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 23. About that time... There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is how Luke refers to Christianity in the book of Acts. Uh, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines for Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. And so, so Demetrius is a silversmith. He'd be what's the modern equivalent of like a union labor leader for all the other craftsmen. And what they would do is the temple of Artemis is one of the ancient or seven ancient wonders of the world. At the time that this was written, it was the largest building that had ever been built in the world was the temple of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of fertility, and so they would make these little uh, figurines. Uh, Demetrius and his other um, craftsmen would make these little figurines that they would sell in order to uh, fund their own business, but also that was part of the worship of Artemis was selling these little small idols, these small figurines. And so what Demetrius is doing is he is correctly diagnosing the problem for his business. He's looking at his profit and loss sheet, and he's saying, hey, wait a second. The more people come to Christ, and follow the Apostle Paul, the worse our business does. We are taking a hit with our finances because of what's going on here with Paul and the whole world, how he's exaggerating. People coming to Christ is hurting our bottom line. And I love the way that he phrases that. He says that there was no little disturbance that arose concerning the way. That's such a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel when it enters into someone's heart. It causes this disturbance that changes the priorities of every single one of us. Back in Acts chapter 17, when some people were attacking Paul, they said that uh, he and his friends had turned the world upside down. And and I love that picture of, of, like I said, the power of the gospel to bring about change in individuals, but also change in society. And, and it's convicting for me when I look at, like, our church has been ministering in the same area for nine years now, and I ask myself, what is the disturbance that we have caused in our community? Okay, have, have I turned the world upside down with the gospel? Have I even seen my street turned upside down with the gospel? Where is that gospel disturbance that Paul is seeing? And I think what, what this challenge is, is that we, we need to pray for and seek the disturbance of our city. Okay, there's this passage in Jeremiah 29 that's become famous lately that says, seek the welfare of your city. And that's a beautiful verse that's important for all of us as Christians that, that if we are for the city that we live in, the city should be benefited by our presence there. But I think this is the other side of that same coin. If you've been changed by the gospel, you should try to stir some stuff up in your city. Right? Your town should be disturbed because of how the gospel is changing lives. That's what we see in world history. Okay, the, the idea that women have dignity and value, that, that earth-shattering concept came from the early church and Christianity. 
The, the idea that children have dignity and value, that earth-shattering concept came from Jesus and his followers. The, the idea that if someone is sick, they need to be cared for. Okay, if you, like read through world history and see what happened. That earth-shattering concept came from Christianity. And so the, the, the disturbance of the gospel follows everywhere that the gospel is rightly preached. But here's the thing. Um, that disturbance that they're talking about here isn't because Paul got an army he didn't recruit a bunch of revolutionaries. The reason Demetrius was able to see that his business was tanking is because one heart at a time stopped going to the temple of Artemis and buying these silver shrines and instead started going to Jesus and worshiping him as their savior. Okay, gospel disturbance doesn't come because we cause a commotion. Gospel disturbance comes because our neighbors' lives are transformed. Our roommates' lives are transformed. Our families' lives are transformed. The people who live down the street from us, their lives are transformed. And so if you want to cause a disturbance for the gospel, we have to ask ourselves, is there any distinction in our lives? Has my heart been transformed? Because if my heart hasn't been transformed, there's no way I will see that disturbance caused with anyone that I am interacting with. And so, so here's, the, here's the deal. This is like I said in the beginning, that we are more like the Philistines than unlike them. We are those same kinds of foolish people. And what we're going to see is that Demetrius, his business was making idols. Okay, and John Calvin, the great 16th century reformer, he has this awesome quote where he says, the human heart is a factory of idols. We say that Demetrius exists in our heart and business is going well. Right? His shop is up for business and our hearts produce idols in ourselves. And so here's a quote from Tim Keller. He's kind of the, the pope of evangelicalism in America right now. So when he talks about idols, we know we need to listen. And listen to what he says. He's a, he's a pastor in New York, I should have clarified. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Okay, so we don't go to worship the goddess of fertility and, and um, um, Artemis anymore. But our hearts have these idols that we run to. And, and what Keller says so poignantly is, it's the one thing you look at and you say, if I only achieve that, then I know I'll be okay. And so it's different for all of us. We all have different things we can look to. But, but if you reflect in your own mind right now, what is that preferred future that you're working towards? What's the one thing you say, if I only have this, then I know my life will be okay. okay if I get that beautiful marriage that I'm longing for, if I get the children that I desire, if, I, if my kids grow up and they get into the good schools or they are on the good sports teams, uh, if I have a family, if I have a job that I find significance in, if I have, like, what are the things in your life that you're crafting that says, if I only have that, then I know that I will matter? Okay, what we're seeing from this passage is that that means that is an idol. And whether or not it has a temple like Artemis, it's something your heart is running to and worshiping. Here's how Keller describes this, another quote. He says, We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Okay, the most dangerous idols, the most dangerous things that for our hearts to build our lives around are often the very best things, right? God created marriage. Marriage is a great thing, but if you make marriage your idol, it will crush you. Okay, if you are a parent, God has called you to love and disciple those kids. It's a beautiful blessing from the Lord. But if you make your kids an idol, you will crush them and be crushed by them. Okay, your job, like we talked about calling, vocation, it's good to have a job that you look to, uh, but if you look to your job for significance, you will be crushed by it. 
Okay, those good things often are the things that have the most danger. And I love how Demetrius, the, the irony of what he says, the silversmith, as he's, as he's rallying up everyone, he's saying, Paul has the audacity to say that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And don't you love the, the craziness of that statement? He's like, why would you think that if you can make this with your hand, that it's something to actually worth your time and your worship? And Isaiah, and the Old Testament prophet Isaiah 44, makes a similar point. He says, uh, if you can cut down a tree and use part of it to make a shelter and use part of the tree to start a fire and then use part of the tree to make an idol to worship, isn't there something wrong with your order of worship here? Right? And so the irony there, though, is that we do the same things all the time. Right? Like we, we expect our own effort to make people like us that that becomes a, an idol of approval and acceptance. And we think if we work really hard, it'll bring significance. And, and what we're seeing here is that that significance can never come from anything outside of Jesus. And so, so the question, we, if we were there, that you would want to ask Demetrius is, okay, so Artemis is your God, but if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? If you have to run to Artemis's defense in order to know that you're okay, what makes you think Artemis would ever have the power to save you like you want? Let's see how the story keeps going. This is what saving your God looks like. Verse 28. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they were there, why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, so this is a picture of complete pandemonium and chaos. I think we actually have a picture of the, uh, the, um, uh, where this assembly took place, this amphitheater in Ephesus. And what we know is like that this place seats 25,000 people. Okay, so, so this commotion starts because of uh, Demetrius starting this riot, and 25,000 people rush into that amphitheater and for two hours chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Luke, the author, points out that the confusion, the mob mentality has taken over, and most of the people there don't even know why they have come. Okay, that's, that's an also a good picture of our human nature and the way that we can get caught up in things and tell ourselves this is of the utmost significance. And deep down, we're like, you know, I'm not even sure how I ended up here. Okay, I heard this amazing story, this news article a few years ago. And I think it was in Turkey. There was a, a flock of 1,500 sheep. And one of these sheep wandered off a cliff and then another sheep followed it, and then another sheep followed it, and eventually, within a few hours, all 1,500 sheep had followed one another off of this cliff. The, the funny thing, or the tragic thing, maybe you can say, is that only, only 450 of the sheep died because eventually the pile of fluffy bodies got high enough that it cushioned the fall of the other sheep as they fell off the cliff. And so that picture is kind of comical, but it's a good picture of our own hearts. Right, we can get caught up in things and we can follow each other off the cliff saying that my, my God needs defending and I'm willing to do this. But ultimately we see the silliness of the Ephesians is reflected in the fact that, that they're, they're chanting great as Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours in this mob mentality. And what they're really trying to do is save their deity. And so you can ask yourself, if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? 
And so, so the question then we have to ask ourselves is if, if our hearts are idol factories, if we are all tempted to run to something saying, I'll have significance if I can achieve this, how do you discern what your idols are? Okay, what is the thing that my heart is tempted to run towards? How do I know if I'm pursuing an idol or not? And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, is to trace our anger, our anxiety, and our depression. Okay, what are the things that make you mad? What are the things that feel like they crush you? And what are the things that make you give in to despair? Uh, because we see this here with, with this riot. It started because they said Artemis is threatened. And how did the mob respond? They were enraged. They were filled with anger, and that's why they led out into this mob. So think about it. When was the last time you were truly angry? What was, and what are the kinds of things that most easily push your buttons and make you filled with rage trying to defend something? Okay, what's happening is you're probably being tempted to save your God. And again, the question's the same for us. If your God needs saving through your anger, what makes you think that that God could ever save you? Okay. So, so again, like I said a little bit ago, picture like that perfect scenario, that desired future. Maybe it's the, a marriage you're longing for, a job you're longing for, or something like that. But how do you respond when that future, that ideal future is threatened? That's how you'll know if you're pursuing an idol or not. Here's another Tim Keller quote. It says, there's a difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning and hope, there are no alternative sources to turn to. It breaks your spirit. I think you could say also, it doesn't just break your spirit, it enrages your heart. So again, what are the things that cause you to be filled with rage or despair or anger or depression, those kinds of things? Uh, A few weeks ago, I was... um, I go golfing like twice a year, uh, which means I'm just a really terrible golfer, and I spend a lot of money being depressed about how bad of a golfer I am. But I went with some friends from our church, uh, and we did something wrong. We're still not real sure what happened, but the general manager of the golf course comes racing out on his, on his golf cart, and before he's even off of his golf cart, he's yelling at us that we have screwed up his entire course. We don't know what we're doing. We're messing things up. He, like, he gets the keys out of our golf cart and tells us we're, we're having to walk home because this is his place, and how dare we mess with him. Uh, and the funny thing is, like, so he, the guy's super mad. I'm responding thinking, boy, it looks like this guy wants to fight. Uh, the two guys that I'm with, one is an Army Special Forces, an Army, uh, Army Ranger Special Forces guy. The other guy is on the SWAT team in our police force. And so I figured those guys are probably looking to the pastor for protection, so I better be the one to take the lead here, keep these guys safe, because they probably don't know how to handle themselves if this turns ugly. But I, um, I wish I could say I kept my cool and this guy coming at me that it was like, okay, let me, just, let me just love you like Jesus loves you. Instead, though, I was filled with rage. I was filled with anger. I started yelling back at this guy. I, I, the, the SWAT team guy went into like hostage negotiation mode because it was turning pretty ugly pretty fast. But as I, as I reflected back on that and as I repented of that afterwards, I had to ask myself, why was I so angry so quickly? It's not like I've never been yelled at before. I mean, like, obviously this guy was confused, had us mistaken for someone else or something. But whatever it was, my response was not in line with reality. And I think what had happened was like that, that some of the things he was saying were attacking some of these idols in my heart. He, he was calling me a liar, and I value my integrity. He was saying that I was messing things up, but I, I value doing things correctly. So all these things I had built my identity around of, I'm the good pastor who's here golfing with some people from our church. That was being threatened by the way this guy was treating me, and I responded with the same anger that the Ephesians had. Okay, and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to save my image 
okay? And I'm getting angry about that. And I, I need to ask myself, if my God needs saving, what makes me think it could ever save me? Okay, what are the things that make you angry or discouraged? And if you need to save those things, are they really worth building your life around? And again, I'm, I'm not using very good illustrations or good examples this morning. And I think the, the, the thing with that is they're so unique. Okay, these false gods that we run to are as unique as, as idols as there are unique individuals. Okay, we, we, can, all, we can have similar uh, temptations, but they're going to they're gonna reveal themselves in different ways because each of our heart experiences brokenness in a unique way. And we're going to be tempted to run to different things in unique ways, trying to uh, have those idols instead of Jesus saving us. So, so listen how the riot resolves here in verse 35. It says, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, so this is the leader of the, the, the political organization of Ephesus, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So the reason this temple was built is a meteorite landed in Ephesus, and they were convinced that that meteorite was a depiction of the goddess Artemis, and they built the temple around it, is what he's saying. Uh, Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly." Okay, so, so here, here's the irony is it's the political leader of Ephesus who brings calm to this mob saying that you don't need to worry about defending your God or defending your idol. And it's, it doesn't take a genius to read between the lines here and see what this town clerk is doing is he is defending his idol. So he's the leader of these people, and if the riot gets out of hand, he knows that the Romans are going to come and take away his authority and give it to someone else. So he is squashing their idolatry with his own idolatry, which is how human hearts always work. A lot of times the conflict that we experience is some idol in my heart bumps up against some idol in your heart, and from that, this eruption explodes. And so, so he's able to bring some calm to the crowd. They're all dismissed, and they go home. Part of it's like, yeah, they've been chanting for two hours straight. Have you, have you ever tried chanting the same thing for two hours? That, that would be exhausting. I'm pretty sure everyone would be willing to head home at that point anyway. But here's the tragic thing that happens, is he's able to calm the crowd, and everyone returns to this state of equilibrium, and they all go home their separate ways, convinced that they did their job, and that Artemis is defended, and the city will live to see another day. Their goddess will continue to be worshipped. And I think that is exactly how the enemy always deals with gospel disruption. Remember how we started? There was a great disturbance that arose because people were turning to Jesus. What Satan's biggest goal is, is to see if he can get everyone to be pacified and fall back asleep, trusting that their idols will be okay after all, and they don't need to change anything. Okay, the crisis has passed, equilibrium has returned, and we can all go about our ways, worshiping our idols, hoping that no one threatens them in the future. Okay, and, and that the time of saving their God is over. And so I think the thing that we need to, to realize for us is when your idol is threatened, when you have that moment where you feel angry or discouraged or given to despair or whatever that is, that brings this tension up in your heart. It brings this turmoil. And what God is doing in his mercy is he is revealing to you that you've been building your life on something that isn't strong enough to carry the weight of your soul. 
And so we can do one of two things. We can either repent of that and say, oh my gosh, I've made a horrible error in going to this thing instead of Jesus. I repent of my sin and I'm turning back to Jesus. Or we can wait till the tension passes, till the turmoil is gone and go back coddling our idol thinking it's going to be okay. Right? Because if you make an idol out of your career, sometimes you do get the promotion and the raise and you're convinced that it's working. Right? If, if you make an idol out of a relationship, sometimes the, the relationship continues on and things are going well and you can continue to make that your God. Sometimes if you make an idol out of your kids, uh, they, sometimes they're, sometimes they're well-behaved. Not very often, but sometimes they're well-behaved and you're convinced that, yes, this is worth me building my life around. And I think what we're wanting to see from this passage is, is not to be pacified by the enemy and forget that that thing is not strong enough to carry the weight of our soul. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill said, uh, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I think that has some discipleship applications for us. In that moment of crisis, when you are confronted with the fact that your idol is not strong enough to save you, don't let that moment go to waste. Okay, repent of that idol and turn back to Jesus because he's the only one that can actually save you. Okay, so, so we want to ask that talking about idols is easy, right? I'm sure if you grew up in the church, this is not the, the last, first or the last time that you will have heard a sermon that talks about our heart idolatries and our struggles. But the thing is, no matter how many times I hear this, my heart keeps going back to those same things. I keep struggling with those same things. In one sense, that's God's mercy because it's a continual reminder that I need his grace. But there's also a, a question I have to ask myself of why am I not repenting enough to, to make some growth in this area? I, I think here's, um, this is a safe place, right? We're all, we're all good friends here, I can be honest, right? Uh, last week, I preached this sermon for our church. And before I preach the sermon, I'm taking a walk with the Bible and I'm praying through this, trying to get my heart in the right spot to preach this sermon to our people that, hey, if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? Uh, and in the back of my mind, I have this email that I got the day before that was really attacking my leadership as a pastor. And, I, and as I was practicing this sermon, I am coming up with the perfect rebuttal to this guy to put him in his place, to show how stupid he is, how great of a leader I am, and how he dares to ever cross me. Like, and I'm repenting of that and going back to my sermon. And I'm preaching to myself, if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? And then five steps later, the, same, the, the conclusion to the email comes into my mind. I'm like, here's the best conclusion. And I'm right back in that same spot. So I don't want to make this sound like, oh, just turn from your idols and everything will be good and it's super easy. Like, it is a challenge. The life of discipleship is a difficult one that requires us giving of ourselves wholly to Jesus. Uh, I, think, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, uh, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It will always be easier to coddle your idols and convince yourself that it's all going to be okay. The true work comes when we realize that there's something bigger going on that Jesus is calling us to. And so I think one of the things, if we want to see some growth in our hearts and turning from these false gods, there's some things that we can do. One of the things we can do is recognize that that desire that we have in our hearts is most likely a desire for a good thing. Okay, in Ecclesiastes 3, the author says uh, that, that God has put eternity into man's heart. What he's saying is that God has placed these longings into our hearts. These desires that we have most often are good things. We've just misapplied them. Okay, what those desires are really for, if you look into them deeply, the thing that you are most tempted to make an idol out of is probably the thing that is most easily going to lead you to Jesus. Okay, St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. 
Okay, your heart's restlessness is really a desire for Jesus. So, so the way that we can grow from this idolatry is super simple, right? Like I said, in the moment of crisis, it's repent of the idol and turn back to Jesus. I, I love that old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Okay, if we turn, as we turn our eyes on Jesus, as we keep eternity in our hearts, that's when it allows us to see our idols correctly and to turn from them, to realize that if my God needs saving, what makes me think it could ever save me? And so I want to end with, with this one picture. Um, like I said, that the, um, the uh, Artemis' temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and how did the town clerk pacify the crowd? He said, hey, listen, everyone knows that Artemis is the god of the Ephesians and that her statue fell. And as you look back now, uh, that is the temple ruins of Artemis. That at one point was one of the seven wonders of the world. And what it is now is it's a few ancient stones standing on top of one another that you can pay a few bucks to a tour guide and he will tell you some of the legend of Artemis. And I think that's a good reminder with our hearts is in the moment of idolatry, we're convinced this is everything. If I don't get this, I will be crushed and what Jesus is doing is he's showing us that a foreshadowing that whatever your idol is that you run to besides him, it eventually will be a pile of ruins. But Jesus is the only one who remains. Remember what we've been saying? If your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? The reason Jesus is different from all other gods is he gave of himself to save you. He will never need you to come to his rescue. He left his place in heaven in order to rescue you. And if we have found our rest in Jesus, our hearts don't need to be restless after those other things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, story today, this, this, uh, these inspired words uh, from your servant who show us that uh, these idols are everywhere. Our, our hearts can be tempted to be just like Demetrius. Uh, we give in to anger and despair too frequently, Lord. And what that is is a gracious reminder of you that uh, whatever that thing is we're clinging to isn't strong enough to bear the weight of our souls. So I pray that each of us, no matter where we've come from today, that we would not look to anything other than your son for salvation. Lord, we thank you that he loved us enough to come to earth to obey in all the ways that we struggle and to die the death that we deserved and then to defeat sin and death once and for all by rising again. I pray that the strength and the confidence that that gives us would allow us to turn from our idols and turn towards you in repentance and faith. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.